Thank you, Matt and Eric. And uh, I'm Dave Mitchell, and it's good to be with you. I'll be your preacher for the next uh, 35 minutes. And so I appreciate the opportunity to share with you this little handy outline that is in the bulletin. You can use it to follow along. And this morning it really ties in. Speaking of Israel, we want to tie that together. You'll see how it is all synchronized here in just a moment. We have a brand new series we're calling United. It's really a four-parter. It's the month of August. Communion today. We want to talk about baptism next week. And then the following two Sundays, it's all about the Word of God and why we can trust the Word of God. And so it's a, it's a fundamental series. It's a reminder series. It's sort of the basics of our faith as we unite together. And I just want to give you a little heads up that there is a certain uh, fact about communion that puts us into a little bit of a, uh, a danger zone, if I can put it that way. I don't want to be negative too much. We're certainly glad that you're here to worship together. But it's interesting, when God began the church, there were actually two fairly sacred moments that He used to teach us that we need to be faithful followers of His. In these two moments, we can become sort of perfunctory, sort of routine and rote, And God says, I want to bring life to that. I want it to be something meaningful and real. Those two things, when the church began in Acts chapter 2, that God brought sort of a form of discipline to teach them how important these things are, was number one, the first thing was the offering. In Acts 2, the church begins. In Acts 5, there's a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira who, in an improper way, brings their offerings to the Lord. And they died. That's pretty serious business. God took them home. Then in 1 Corinthians 11, as Paul teaches the Corinthian church, he says, here's what communion should be. Some of you are not taking it properly. And then Paul says in that passage, so a number of you are sick and some of you have died. Now, those are two very sacred things that often I know that I can practice in a fairly routine way and not have the full meaning and value behind it. So I don't want anybody to die today, all right? Is that a fair thing to say? (laughs) Of course. We want to unite together around this, and I know that every Sunday in Elevation, we practice communion. We often will come up to the tables to receive it on our own, Today we're going to pass it as we will often do on the first Sunday of each month. But I want us to really recapture and renew in our hearts and our minds what it's all about. So let's get into it, if you will. Imagine you are on that Israel trip with uh, Eric and Matt and the others who will go. One of the things that you might do in the nation of Israel is to celebrate the Passover if you're there at the right time. I've been there during that Passover season. It's a very sacred moment, and there are practices that go on that uh, I've never been part of before, but you see that there's a seriousness about it. And at the Passover Seder, they would prepare a meal that might be like the meal that you see on the screen behind me. And each of these elements of that meal, if you go to the Passover Seder that Matt puts on here in December, uh, you can uh, participate in that and find out what all of those elements mean and how they really have a spiritual symbol that's relevant for us who are in Christ. And at that Passover feast, it's celebrated often with very fancy paintings. Leonardo da Vinci put together a painting, rendering. What imagine the Last Supper was like with Christ, 
We don't know what it looked like. We're not even sure that that's the kind of table that sat on, and that's the way that they conducted that. But one thing that is clearly something we need to understand is that the Passover, that is the roots through which we now celebrate communion. So let me just take you back in time. We need to understand what Jesus' teaching on communion was all about. As you can see on the screen, Jesus changed the focus of the Passover from Israel's past redemption from Egypt to the sacrifice of a lamb at that time to our present and future salvation from sin and our current redemption that comes through his sacrifice. So let me, let me twist that around. Here's what Jesus did with his first disciples. As they gathered together, it's the last week, Passover season in Matthew 26, 2 says it's the Passover season. And he's going to die that week. So not coincidentally, but by the design of God, the sacrifice of Jesus as the Lamb of God was given on that cross during the Passover season, even as the Jews would practice the sacrifice of the literal Lamb on earth to help them remember the redemption from the nation of Egypt. So Jesus then at that last supper, that week of his crucifixion, he said this to his men. While they were eating, they were eating the Passover feast. Jesus took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat of this body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, looking forward. And they sang a hymn, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. That's the first communion, if you will, that really bridges the Old Testament's Passover feast with our current communion service. So if you take the elements that Christ had, he first of all took the bread. He took what is called matzah bread because it's named after the word, Hebrew word for unleavened is matzah. And this is the kind of bread that we will have this morning that we typically have on any communion service. And it is this matzah bread that Christ would take into his hand and he would break it, not because his body was broken, but to be able to distribute to the disciples those elements of that bread. And that day, here's what the disciples are thinking. They're all Jewish men. They probably have celebrated the Passover feast every single year of their lives, being in a good Jewish home. And Jesus took that bread, he blesses it, and what's in the disciples' mind is this. Every year I take that Passover feast, I take that bread, I take that matzah, and I am reminded in the taking of that bread that this is the sign of the redemption, the removal of the bondage of Egypt in Exodus chapter 12, that in 1,400 plus years earlier, Moses and the Jews were redeemed out of the nation of Israel. And he says, take unleavened bread because you don't have time to leaven the whole lump because you're going to leave in haste, as it says. You're going to leave quickly. So take the unleavened bread. You leave the leaven of Egypt behind. Today we know leaven as symbolic of sin. So you leave that behind because you're going to begin a brand new life outside of the bond of Egypt. The Jewish disciples who sat at that last supper are hearing Jesus say something different now. He said, this bread is not about Egypt anymore. 
As good as that was, and we thank God for the history that is our country, but now this bread means something different. This bread is now my body. I want you to think of the bread not of Egypt but of my body. And the disciples are thinking, what in the world is this rabbi talking about? This is new information to us. Where is this coming from? So the men gathered together and realizing there's something new going on here. And Jesus is introducing them to the new phenomenon that we today call communion that is rooted in the Passover. And then in Exodus chapter 12, they would know this passage, having been taught it as Jewish men. You shall also observe the feast of the unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. This is something you do all the time. And the word unleavened again meaning matzah. And so the disciples are sort of having their heads spin. This teacher that we have followed for three years is redefining the Passover. They're having a hard time coming to grips with it. They didn't fully understand it until he was even resurrected from the dead. And then Jesus took the cup. There was one cup. He took that cup and he gave thanks. Often communion is referred to in some traditions as the Eucharist. Well, the Eucharist is that Greek word for thanks. So Jesus said Eucharist, giving good words, good thankful words to the God that we worship today. And he declared it a new covenant of our forgiveness in his blood rather than the old covenant of repeated sacrifices. So he took the cup. There was one cup. Paul defined this cup as the cup of blessing. 1 Corinthians 10 says, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? So in 1 Corinthians 10, he's setting up communion in 1 Corinthians 11 that we'll read in just a moment. And he says, in this first communion where Jesus took this cup, as he would pass it amongst the men, he called it a cup of blessing. The reason he calls it a cup of blessing because in the Passover Seder, in the Passover feast that they were celebrating together, for hundreds of years they've been practicing the four cups of the Passover feast. There was the first cup that is the cup of sanctification. The second cup, the cup of, uh, of, of God's wrath of the plague coming out of the nation of Egypt. Then there's a third cup that they would celebrate, and that third cup is the cup of blessing. This is the cup that they would use after the feast has been eaten. Paul calls it the cup of blessing because as a good Jew, that's what he grew up with. So Jesus takes this cup, and he passes it. And he says, I'm going to call this cup something different than what you remember. Because being a good Jew growing up, celebrating the Passover for 1,400 years of the history of the nation, when they were redeemed from the nation of Egypt, it was typically going to celebrate the blood of the lamb. The lamb's blood was put on the doorposts. So the angel of death would go over their home, and their firstborn would not be struck dead as it was to the Egyptians. And so there is this Passover that happens. And so they would constantly want to remember the lamb, the blood of the lamb, the literal lamb on the earth, as a reminder of what God had done for the nation of Israel so that they could be set free from the bondage of Egypt. Now Jesus says, I'm taking this cup, and it's called something new. In those days, if we were, if we were practicing communion as Jesus did it, we'd have one cup, 
And we'd begin to pass that cup up and down the roads. And everybody would drink from the same cup. Wouldn't that be fun? Want to try it? Anybody got a cold? I was preaching in Moscow a few years ago with my wife, Joy. We went there and visiting our missionaries around Europe. We, we did it in January, which is a great month to go to Moscow. As I preached in that Baptist church over there, it was also Communion Sunday. So as the preacher, you get up there, you set up the communion as well. And here's what they did. They had one cup. It started in the back row. And it went back and forth. And I'm up there on the platform watching this one cup go back and forth as hundreds of people were drinking from it. And finally, it came to the front row, and then someone brought that cup and gave it to me to drink out of as the last one because I was the preacher of the day. In my mind, I'm thinking, Lord, protect me from the germs that are on this cup because I can hardly shake someone's hand without getting sanitized. But that kind of dynamic was going on in my mind. And that's a far cry from anything God wants me to be thinking about as I take the cup and drink from it. And so we use little tiny sanitized plastic cups because we don't want crazy people like me thinking about the wrong thing when we take communion. But if we did it according to Christ, he had the one cup. And I was just talking to a couple that used to live in Israel. And they said, yes, every time they had communion, everybody came up and drank from the same cup. Now, they'd wipe off all the germs, of course, with a cloth, but we all drank from the same cup. So we know that's the tradition. And he takes this cup, and it says a special blessing cup because it's the blessing of God. And it's interesting that some rabbis even talk about a fifth cup, the cup of Elijah. And they don't drink from that cup. That cup's set aside because that cup symbolizes the waiting for the coming of the king and the uniting together of the nation as one body again. And isn't it fascinating how so many of the symbols that come out of Judaism can also illustrate for you and for me that we should also have a cup of Elijah because we're waiting for that Messiah to come back because we're going to drink it with him someday as well. So Jesus takes that cup of blessing and he says, I'm going to redefine it. It's going to become this new covenant. In Luke, Luke records it this way. In the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, so that's the third cup of blessing that comes after the meal, this cup which is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood, it's a brand new relationship. This cup no longer symbolizes the lamb that was sacrificed in Israel so the angel of death would pass over. This cup now symbolizes my blood. I am now the lamb of God. And the disciples are probably trying to come to grips. What in the world is this rabbi talking about? Where is this coming from? And he says, this is the new covenant. Now, Jeremiah speaks of this new covenant. Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Jesus is introducing this concept now to the people of that day, whereas Jeremiah had written it hundreds of years before. He says, this is not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the land. I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
Now Jesus, he takes that concept of a new covenant and he says, I'm changing things. The dynamic of this new covenant is the law is going to be in your heart. It's not going to be on stone tablets that I have to obey. It's going to come out of this internal power that you are my people and you live with my power in you. Someday that new covenant will be fulfilled in the nation of Israel as the Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom. You and I today in Christ, we are the beneficiaries of that new covenant now. Because we become a student of God's word, that law is written in our hearts. And our hearts are tender towards God because his truth is within us. The old covenant that the Jewish disciples of Jesus would have been following is talked about in Hebrews 10. For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Jesus is distinguishing this new covenant that transforms my heart compared to the old covenant that never quite satisfies the relationship with God. It helps me remember who he is. It helps me to be an obedient follower of his. But it never completely perfects me. It simply atones or covers up. But forgiveness is not complete yet. So Jesus is saying to his disciples this. Here's the bread. No longer is it about redemption from Egypt. Don't look back anymore. Well, you can, but it's okay. But don't look back there for what this is all about because this bread now is my body, Jesus said. It is my body that you remember with the matzah of the Passover Seder. And then he says, here's the cup. This cup of blessing. This is no longer about the spilt blood of the lamb. This is now about my blood. So for Jesus and his 12 disciples, they're trying to come to grips with a new reality and a new definition and a new life that is all focused on Christ, not the history of the nation of Israel. And that was a tough thing for them to absorb, let alone to see their Savior die just hours later. Just stunning. So Jesus gives to us that backdrop of how what we do in communion goes all the way back 1,400-plus years ago, but now is redefined through Christ for a practice that focuses on the future of his return. So that's what he's setting up. So the question comes, how do I know if I'm ready to take communion today? When the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 11, He gave them this stern warning. He says, I'm troubled about you, in essence. He says, because as a result, many of you are weak, sick, and a number sleep. Well, if a number are weak, sick, or a number sleep because they didn't practice communion properly, that stirs my heart to say, well, Lord, what in the world do I need to stop doing and then start doing to be right with you? My fear is that we have practices that we go through and, and we just sort of do it by, as I said earlier, by rote. And I want it to have new meaning or renewed meaning, if you will. And then how do I know if you've got children? How do I know that my children should be practicing communion? At what age is the right age for them to practice communion? 
Well, I would say as we go through the next little portion here, these practices that we indulge in today, if they have the meaning that we're going to have from Scripture, then everybody who does that and knows that and believes that is ready for communion, no matter what their age may be. We need to learn from God's Word. Now, God's Word teaches us that there are certain things that are wrong about communion. If you go back to the Corinthian church, he says that there are practices that were sinful because they were all about pride and selfishness, and they weren't eating this common meal, this Passover feast, this love fest. They weren't doing it in a proper way. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen teaches us this. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better but for the worse. You're not coming together for Christ. It's all about yourselves. I want it to be about Jesus, the bread, the cup. It's about Jesus. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it because you are an immature group of people, as he says throughout the book. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together at this love feast, this supper, this gathering together around the meal, when you gather together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. You've lost the focus. You're thinking about the wrong things. He says, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry and another is drunk. The rich people get their fair share. The poor people get nothing. Some people are drinking too much of the wine. They're getting drunk. There's this confusion. There's this loss of focus. There is this divisiveness and pride. And the last thing we need is more of that going on in the church. So Paul says, don't do that. Let's get things right. Let's be properly prepared. And that's what he then says, for this reason, many of you are weak, sick, and a number sleep. So God says, this is serious stuff. It's a sacred time. So not, should, not only our practices need to be in order, hearts right, but also our beliefs. There are some beliefs that are out there that are contrary to what we believe Scripture teaches, and one is called transubstantiation. Now, if some of you come out of the Roman Catholic faith, Roman Catholic tradition, we respect that. And I really respect how the Roman Catholic Church really holds in a very sacred way the communion. And part of that is because it's the practice of transubstantiation, which is saying that the bread and the wine literally changes into, trans changes into the body and blood of Christ. So in some sense, that body and blood of Christ is being sacrificed every time communion is practiced. Now, we don't believe that here, but we certainly respect the sacredness of that moment. There is consubstantiation. Uh, Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic priest, and we probably are somewhat familiar with him and his edicts and his breaking from the Roman Catholic Church and discovering that we're saved by faith alone, not by our works. One of the things that he uh, reconstituted from communion, instead of transubstantiation, he has consubstantiation. The word con means to be with. So in the Lutheran tradition, Jesus is spiritually, he, as he says it, with, in, and under. There's a spiritual presence of Christ around those elements that is unlike any other presence of Christ in another way. And as fine as that is, Jesus had him break away from some of the faith of the Roman Catholicism, but this is a little bit of a different tradition than what we practice here. We believe that communion is more of a memorial. And as Paul then describes it in these next passages, we see the element of what we need to believe 
and what we should be thinking about and what I should be thinking about when the elements are passed. He writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And there are three ways that I would encourage us to think and focus on during communion. And the first is our union with Jesus Christ. Remember me, Jesus says. One of the things that I would be encouraged to remember is the day that I came to know Christ as my Savior. For me, it was in my mother's kitchen that I've shared sometime in the past, and uh, my mother's bedroom, and there she came to me, and I came to her, and we sort of had this moment where I said, you know, I, I think I want to become a Christian. She said, that's great. And we prayed together, and I prayed, God, I am a sinner. As a 12-year-old kid, I didn't do a lot of bad sinning, but I did enough sinning to not get into heaven. And so I needed Jesus, so I said, Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I want to trust in you today that you would forgive me of my sins, and I accept you as my Savior. I want to live for you as my Lord. Words to that effect. And when we get the elements of the bread and the cup, it's important for us to remember, to remember that relationship. Remember when it began. I was just talking to a couple that I married 16 years ago. They said, we were looking at the pictures of the wedding, and they remarked how much I had changed. (laughs) 16 years. And you like to hear things like that. And they said, at every anniversary... It was in June, 16 years ago. Every anniversary, we get out the wedding album, and we go through the pictures to remember the day we began our lives together in in marriage. That is the sort of thing that communion is. Every day, every month, every week, we remember who Jesus is. And when I began that relationship with him, we remember him. We wear wedding rings. They are symbols. I don't need a wedding ring to remember that I'm married to joy. We celebrated our 42nd anniversary just a few days ago down at the beach, just a little beach picnic with uh, the two of us and hanging out with... uh... It's funny what we clap for, but thank you. for I appreciate that. So for 42 years, we've been married on August the 3rd. And we, we reviewed that day. We got married. I had a cast on my leg from my hip to my toes. I don't, I don't encourage that kind of uh, living when you get married, have a cast from your hip to your toes, but it's, it creates uniqueness about it that's memorable. But I, we've been married for 42 years, and I don't need this wedding ring to remember. Oh, that's right. If I forget to put it on someday, oh, let's see, am I married or, or am I not? No, I remember. I, I always remember. But isn't it great to have symbols, whether it's a photo album or a wedding ring? And inside my wedding ring, Joy had engraved PALS, P-A-L-S. That's what's inside my wedding ring with the date, so I never forget. PALS, because we were PALS before we were lovers. And so it's just those little things that kind of stir, oh, yeah, 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 remember when, remember when, remember when. Communion is remember when. The union when we began a relationship together. Secondly, we think about reunion. 
Someday Jesus is coming back. Jesus, or Paul writes, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He gets us looking forward. We look past to our union. We look forward to our reunion. Jesus even did that in Matthew 26 that we just read. He says, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of this vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He says, I'm coming back. You may not fully understand it now, guys, but I'm coming back, and we're going to celebrate this Passover feast again, and we're going to do it in my kingdom, finally established. Rejected at that time, but established in the future by the return of Christ. He says, I want you to remember that. I want you to have a reunion with that in mind. You know, when you get married, typically you have a rehearsal dinner. Often the night before, two nights before, you sort of rehearse the wedding and then you have a meal together. Sometimes I like to think about communion that we practice like today is that rehearsal meal because I'm rehearsing in my mind the future when I'm finally married to my bride, Uh, the bride, I should say, to the groom who is Christ. And in our wedding rehearsals, typically for us who are on this side of our culture, the groom's family pays for the rehearsal meal. Jesus has paid for this rehearsal meal to allow us to prepare our hearts for his return. John writes it this way, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, when he comes back that second time, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Jesus purifies himself just as he is pure because I want to be ready. I want to be pleasing to God who comes back and finds me faithfully carrying out all that he's ever asked me to do by the power of the Spirit of God within me, that new covenant. And so communion is that constant reminder that, Lord, you may come back today. Maybe this is the day. And in purity and holiness, I await your return. I often, the scriptures call it, I eagerly await your return. And that's a beautiful place to be. Communion. It helps me to remember my union with Christ. It helps me to focus on a reunion with Jesus someday. And then finally, it's this focus today. This is the communion that I have with God. It's to make sure I am right with him in every aspect of my life. Now, most of us, we don't need to have this to be sure we're right with God, but often these are the moments that we allow ourselves to be more reflective in a moment where we stop from all the business of life, all the things I've got to do, all the things that preoccupy my mind. There's so many pressures to be doing and being and Pokemon and all these other things that I feel like I've just got to be in the mix of it all. And God says, you know, just, just stop. Put away the phone. Put away every else, everything else that would distract. And let's reflect. And here's what Paul says why. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There are two key words there on this reflectiveness where we stop and reflect and consider and think. Unworthy and examine. Let me tell you about the word unworthy. I've spoken on it a few times in the past. In that day, it's a marketplace term. 
If you would go to a shop where you're buying meat or grain, you would bring your bartering chips or whatever you used for your commerce, and you put it on one side of the scale, and you put the grain on the other side of the scale. The clerk, the store owner, if the bartering chips and the grain are in balance, he would say that's a worthy price, and we would make the purchase. Paul takes that marketplace term of a worthy price where the money and the product are of equal value, and he says that spiritually is what we need to think about. Because often, I'll speak of myself, I'm out of balance. I thought about something, I said something, I had a bad motivation, I shouldn't have done that, and suddenly I'm out of balance. I'm unworthy. The sin weighs me down compared to the holiness of my God and my Savior, Jesus Christ. So I am unworthy. In that moment, I don't want to take of communion. I want to get worthy so I can take communion. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be unworthy. I want you to be worthy because I can't become worthy by just working harder at it, by just doing better. Galatians 3 says it's by the Spirit you continue to live your life. It's by faith that you enter into Christ and you live for Christ. And the Spirit gives you power to do it. So he makes you worthy. Christ in me makes me worthy in balance with God. It makes me as holy as he is, which is an unthinkable thought in my mind. I can't imagine that God would say I am worthy of celebrating the bread and the cup because I am as holy as he is. It's just it's hard to imagine. So Jesus says, let me just come alongside you, Dave, and let me do it for you. Let my cross come to you to remove the sins that you confess and give you the righteousness that is mine. That's why Peter, one of those disciples that was at that first communion service, at that Passover meal that was celebrated together with them, gave to us good words as he remembered his Savior, Jesus Christ. For you have been called for this purpose, Peter writes, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. I love that. He bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He makes us worthy. So I'd like for us to stop before we take communion. Before our leaders pass the bread and then the cup, we're doing it separately today. I want us to take a moment now and reflect, examine, if you will. So as the leaders go out and Janelle comes up to lead us in a time of music and worship, would we just stop? Just sit in your seat. Don't look at the phone. Don't look at your neighbor. Just look to Christ and say, Lord, is there anything? 
that you want to do in my life to make me worthy? Is there any area? Because Jesus does it for you. You don't do it for yourself. So we're not putting a burden on you. We're simply inviting you to invite Christ. If you've never believed in Jesus as your Savior, maybe today is the day to say, yes, today I choose to believe in Jesus. I trust in him as the one who died to pay for my sins. God, I confess them to you now, and I want to receive your forgiveness and your righteousness. Maybe it's a time of renewal to say, Lord, these are the areas that I've been led astray in, as Peter talks about it. I want to be right with you. So I take communion. I'm in balance. I am worthy. Jesus will do that for you. Will you just take a few moments and reflectively pray and examine, and then we'll have the elements passed. Let me give words of thanks. As the bread is now to be passed, Jesus again redefined the meaning. As the disciples came to that Passover feast, they were thinking, okay, the Passover, Egypt, the bread, leave in haste, unleavened bread, matzah. And Jesus says, no, no longer that. Now it's about me. So this bread symbolizes the body of Jesus Christ. Let's give thanks for it. Father, thank you for this element, this symbol that helps us to remember you, to remember your sacrifice and your willingness to go to that cross, that your body would be punctured and crucified so that we could know you, and the wounds and the stripes on your body to bring that healing to our souls that we so desperately need. Thank you. As we remember that through this element of the bread, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
And as Christ gave to those disciples this new meaning, he said, this is my body. He's given it to us as well. Let's remember him well, eating in his name. And then as he passed that cup, that cup of blessing, that these men would have celebrated every Passover feast, but now with a new definition of what that cup was all about, a new covenant, a new relationship that is spiritually infused in each of our hearts through Jesus Christ to empower us, to teach us, to guide us, the law written inside, not externally to study, but internally to live. And so that new covenant is symbolized by this cup. Let's give thanks that Christ's blood cleanses us from sin and remember through the cup that we take. Help us, Father, as we come before you. We want to be worthy, and we know that it is the blood of Christ that makes us worthy. As we turn to Jesus, and he gives to us that forgiveness through the confession of our sins to him. And now we remember Remember the high price that he paid to bear our sins on his body on that cross so that we would not live to sinfulness but to righteousness. Thank you, Father. And, Lord, we remember you now through this cup. In Jesus' name, amen.
I love the scripture that's on the screen, that the blood of Christ, it brings us near. It brings us near to God. There's no other way to come close to God but through the blood of Christ. And so remember that it was the blood of Christ that symbolized in this cup, no longer the cup of blessing for what happened in Egypt, but now a cup of blessing for what God has done in us through Christ. So let's remember him. This is the new covenant in the blood of Christ. Remember it well. We're going to receive our offering, which is another very sacred moment. It's an opportunity for us to reflect externally our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're prepared to give, we invite you to do so. If you're unprepared, we understand that as well. But it's our opportunity to come and express, much as communion expresses a communion with the Holy God, our offerings are ways to express our love and our thanks for what He has done for us as well. So we're going to receive our offering at this time, and let me pray God's thankfulness. Father, thank you for the provisions that each of us have. We're all at different places, and that's okay. But God, out of that which you have given to each of us, may we share in a way that honors your name. Out of a love for you, not of an obligation or a duty, not out of rote or routine, but God is a sincere desire to express our love for you. We bring these offerings to you now, and with thankful hearts we give them. In Jesus' name, amen.
Darkness seems to hide his face. 